Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is the perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through.
Hello, folks, and thank you very much for coming to Bard's Logic Political Talk, part of the growing conservative conversation and also part of the Patriot Journalist Network. And you can find the Patriot Journalist Network by going to www.patriotjournalist.com. And thank you for coming to today's special Saturday edition of the show. Uh, we appreciate you coming either live now or through the podcast uh, to listen to this coverage of the 2016 Constitution Party presidential primary debate. In a little while, we will be piping in live uh, to the debate, getting uh, their questions in. Uh, so if you are a fiscal or social conservative, uh, consider the Constitution Party may be for you. So take an opportunity to see another party that may fit with your principles. And uh, I first I came in contact with the Constitution Party in 2012 after the Republican Convention, uh, whereas we interviewed a lot of the candidates. And you can see on our podcasts all of the uh, different candidates that we did interview from the Constitution Party, including their presidential candidate, Virgil Goode, who I had the uh, honor and uh, thrilled to actually be able to meet uh, Virgil uh, back in uh, when he was running for president, got the meeting coming through Troy, Ohio. Now, let, let me tell you a little bit about the, the candidate they had for him. Is he was coming from the Free and Equals uh, Alternative Party debate, uh, where he was coming back from Chicago, and he was driving through Troy, Ohio, in order to get back to Virginia, where he's from. Now, I wanted to do a personal interview with him uh, for the show, and I was uh, coming up from my city in southern Ohio and driving up to, uh, up to Troy. Well, I gave him a call and, and informed him that I was going to be late. And being the gentleman that he, he is, he said, well, you know what, Robert, I'll wait for you and just give me a call when you're close, and we'll make sure we get this to happen. And so – Jeff Grassroots, uh, Soul of the Earth guy, he, he did that, got the opportunity to meet him, some of his staff, himself, his wife, uh, and I was so convinced of the guy. Uh, in 2012, uh, he got my vote. So I voted for Virgil Goode of the Constitution Party in 2012. So they definitely, uh, at least in that year, came up with some great candidates. We did have the opportunity to interview some of the candidates this year, uh, who you will be hearing at the debate. And uh, it looks like, and yeah, no, uh, actually, I was looking at Cog in the chat. No, you do not need to uh, call in and able to hear. Chad's just taking some things. No, no, Cog, you do not need to call in to hear the debate. We will be getting it piped in here through the show uh, so that you will be able to hear it uh, when, once they're ready. They just, unfortunately, and I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, uh, but they were already having some uh, troubles. But I do see that we are perhaps are ready to uh, go in, so let's go ahead. Susan, thank you very much for coming to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Uh, he's giving uh, are, we, are, we, are we ready to roll? Uh, he's giving the introductions right now, so the speakers aren't actually up there yet. Okay, well, introductions are good. Let's go ahead and uh, get the audio going. 
and we can uh, be texting and stuff behind the scenes or through Facebook, uh, so we can uh, monitor, make sure our audio. I know they're having some technical difficulties there. Just said I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, but you know, be that as it may, uh, it does. The timing of it is interesting, especially since you said one of their floors is working, but the other one is not. So let's go ahead and try to listen to the introductions uh, there and uh, get us into the debate. Uh, go ahead, Susan. Hi, can you hear him? Robert General, we out in Cincinnati, a loud hand of applause. <laughs> Did you hear that? Now, Did you hear that? I wanted to explain what we have. Yeah, we heard the cheering. For you. It's cheering for you. Oh, thank you. Okay. So the Constitution Party in Idaho has said, uh, we now are over 2,265 registered voters. And folks, if you cannot hear this, this is over the Internet, so you also have a volume on your uh, computer, so you could go ahead and, or device you're listening on the podcast, go ahead and turn it up. Go ahead. That, uh, okay, I have the phone over there near him. Hello? What was that, Susan? I said, could you hear him? Yes. Yes, we could. Okay, I'll go back over. Okay, great. So, yeah, for your indulgence in a way, we've never done this before. Obviously, uh, we have some cobbled together technology here to uh, make this happen. Now, in terms of uh, candidates, we will introduce them here directly. Uh, by the way, it's kind of interesting, this particular slide we did, CP Idaho, it's off balance because I can't use that uh, projector up there. <clears throat> um, this has made its rounds on the internet kind of funny to see it because uh, I know where it came from anyway. Uh, we're going to introduce our candidates here in just a second. Uh, Dave, can you do the straw selection? I can, yep. We want to be scrupulously objective in our questions. This is not a gotcha. This is not a Democrat or Republican type of event. We actually want to ask some serious questions and receive some answers. Okay. And so, uh, gentlemen, candidates, here's what this means. <laughs> we supposed we have straws, but here's what this means. Number, this is number three, this is number two, and this is number one. And so that's where you will sit, and the order of questions will be will be uh, based on that. And so, uh, at this point, in reverse order, so as not to upstage anyone, we are going to introduce candidate number three first, Mr. Copeland, Scott Copeland, Weatherford, Texas, an ordained minister, uh, 
graduated from Mississippi College, worked in uh, Mississippi uh, Department of Transportation as a surveyor, and you're still working as a surveyor. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Copeland, candidate for the United States President, Constitution Party. Mr. Myers. Mr. Myers has come all the way from Alaska. Uh, Mr. Myers is a behavioral counselor, uh, works with Native American tribes up in Alaska, uh, holds a master's degree in counseling, two, two master's degrees in counseling. Mr. Myers has been instrumental in organizing the Constitution Party in the state of Alaska and is the current chairman of Alaska. Ladies and gentlemen, J. R. Myers, candidate for president, Constitution Party. <laughs> And Mr. Copian. Patrick, good to see you. Patrick is from San Antonio. Uh, Patrick is a registered nurse. Uh, we, we misspoke and put that as a vocational nurse, but she said that's what he does, but he's a registered nurse, a veteran. Uh, he has earned a combat medics badge. He's uh, a pilot. He received his pilot license, student pilot. And an author of a book, which a copy is on the back table, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, Patrick Anthony O'Kander, candidate for president of the United States Constitution Party. <laughs> now, I'm going to sit down and get out of the way. At this point in the program, you usually have icebreaker questions. And that's to settle the candidates down and to tune the audience's ears. So we're going to ask some icebreaker questions here before we move into the talk of the class. Momentarily. Order. We're going to start. We're also with uh, candidate one, but we're also going to reshuffle the order uh, midstream just to keep the candidates off balance because we're meeting that way. <laughs> anyway, uh, this question, icebreaker, goes to candidate Ocander. Why the Constitution Party? Why are you in it? I'm in the Constitution Party. Because the Constitution Party is what is representative of us, we the people. Um, I looked at all the other parties, and through prayer, meditation, reflection, I came up with, um, I was drawn to the Constitution Party. Um, it's really quite simple. The, uh, I'm a Republican, and I voted Republican most of my life. I've also voted Independent, and, um, and even I, I voted for Bill Clinton right out of high school. But but I learned over the years paying attention to politics and what our what our uh, actual elected officials did compared to what they said, and uh, and over time it became obvious that the Republican Party doesn't represent me, and so I can't represent them. And the Constitution is what we're all supposed to be bound by, and is what actually sets us free. So uh, it it's a natural, it's just basically a natural uh, choice to go with the Constitution Party. And that's basically it, guys. Thank you, Mr. O'Kander. 
The question goes to candidate Myers. Candidate Myers, why the Constitution Party? Thank you. Um, the Constitution Party, well, I started out with the Republican Party, then I actually became an elected Republican precinct committee man in Montana, and I went to several party meetings over the years and realized that they were a lot of talk but no substance. And so um, I had to look around for something else. And I went to the Libertarian Party because they espoused um, free will, free, maximum freedom, that sort of thing. And that was fine. I, I wanted to become chairman of the Libertarian Party. I was on the Twitter committee for years. But I started moving closer to God. And as I did that, the Libertarian Party seemed to be moving away from God and became actually anti God in my estimation. So I could no longer stay within the Libertarian Party. At that point, I went to the Reform Party. I became chairman of the Montana Reform Party. I was in the convention in 2000 in Long Beach where we nominated Patrick Buchanan. I immediately had to return to Montana and file a court with the Buchanan company at filing court to get him on the ballot because of um, political corruption. It's well established in Montana and other places which people are becoming more aware of. Um, after, so after I, I moved to Alaska in 2003, and joined the AIP, which is the Alaskan Independence Party. And I didn't hear anything for a couple of years from them, so I tried to contact them. And, you know, this is probably the, they're like every other alternate third party, whatever you want to call us, opposition party, I prefer that term, in that um, we're all run by volunteers. So there's not a professional staff, there's not an office staff to answer these calls. There's not a professional person to do any outreach for the party. And that's what we really suffer. From that, in addition to the corrupt finance laws, which funnel all the money to the other parties, in addition to the duplicity or the complicity of the media, which um, refuses to report on events like this in an objective manner. And so um, I just kept searching for a home and to develop. Um, to be, I think it's important that, you know, apathy is also a part of this problem, and we can look here and see very clearly that that is the case. And so I believe it's been important to be involved. I, don't, I think you can't just talk about it. You have to be involved. You know, it's just like people saying, well, I'll pray for you. Well, thank you very much, but what are you going to do with that? You need to put action to your prayer. You need to put action to your words and your thoughts or else it's empty rhetoric. And who needs more of that? And then you have plenty of that. So anyway, so I believe it's important to be active and involved. So I did. I have been for many, many years since I was actually in high school. Um, so I think about a lot of nonprofit corporations and stuff like that, but it sort of moved into the political realm. And so now, 30 plus years later, um, with the AIP, I became the liaison to the Constitution Party in 2008. I met Howard Phillips at the convention there in Kansas City. I ran for governor of Alaska two years ago, and here I am.
a great Bible sign in your life, you've lived 80 years. It's time to go. So for me, when I started looking around on the horizon and I started seeing that the Republicans were as much a part of the Democratic platform, I wanted away from them. And I left them in 2010. On Facebook, I met a young man by the name of Graham Judd, who's in the Constitution Party. He's a, a, a chairman of the county Constitution Party. And he contacted me with this. He said, Scott, you are breathing and eating the Constitution Party, and you don't know it. Go to constitutionparty.com, look at the platform and tell me what you think, and if you want to join us, you need to be running for president. So I went to the party, I looked at the seven principles, and I said, man, that is me in a nutshell, because I'm pro-life, I'm pro-family, I'm states' right. I mean, you name it, there it is. <laughs> I don't want high taxation. I want limited government. And that's what the Constitution Party is about. So I have to ask you something. You're not a member of the Constitution Party. Why aren't? Why aren't you a member of the Constitution Party? Because we are probably a reflector of exactly what you are expecting your government to be. So that for me, I know that God led me down this path. He introduced me to people put me on this on this trail to help educate America of what America can really be about. Thank you, Kennedy. So the slides up. I've been falling down on my job over here. Uh, used to black the first icebreaker, uh, then I moved into a little bit different uh, set of questions. These are going to kind of be more personal. Um, the Constitution Party prides itself on being a citizen-led political party. We're not a corporate escort service. And so we take great pride in our uh, extraordinary, ordinary Americans. Uh, candidate Myers, you are a uh, behavioral counselor. Uh, you're working with uh, remote uh, Native American tribes up in Alaska, dealing with some of the sorrows and heartaches of uh, chemical dependency and that sort of thing. What wisdom have you acquired in your professional discipline which will help you make decisions as President of the United States? That's a good question. I think the most important thing is you don't get too much of what's being said to you, and um, that goes a long way, you know. We're too busy formulating our own thoughts or our own response and to listen to what somebody's saying to us. And we aren't, aren't really hearing what we're not really conversing. So I think um, that is that trained listening. Um, also, I help people to uh, address their pathology. So in order to address your illness, your sickness, you have to admit that you have it and it's there. And our clinical system certainly is pathological at this time. So we need a dose of truth to, you know, people to admit that, you know, we've strayed far from the Constitution and it's the, the diagnosis is extra-constitutional government, the prognosis is poor, and the treatment should be citizen activism of that. So um, that's how I would approach it. And also to collaborate with people because part of my work 
And so it's important to bring all the stakeholders to the table whenever you're discussing issues that affect all of us and to make sure that everyone does have a voice and that those voices are heard and give a fair and equal opportunity to be heard. And so, um, you know, I don't know what the president can do as far as the um, communications go, but it is my estimation and as a campaign, I feel more firmly convicted of it, that the public airways are public airways. They belong to the people. They do not belong to the corporations to do as they wish, to prevent the candidates that they think is their prerogative. It is not their prerogative to do this. Their, their job is to report objectively, to present the facts, not to pre-select and to dismiss those that don't conform to their agenda. And so the airwaves include radio, television, internet now, any public means of communication falls under that, in my estimation, and therefore they must all be held to a, a fairness standard so that all candidates are covered equally in various fairness doctrines. And a lot of people might balk at that thinking it's a leftist proposition, but indeed with the Citizens United ruling and the influx of um, massive amounts of cash into the process, it has made the process even more unbearable, intolerable, and uh, exclusive. And so um, if the president has any power whatsoever, that is the direction that I would exercise that authority. And I would also use the building pulpit, as I've said in other forums, to um, encourage people to be involved in their government, to be involved locally. That's how we train up our leaders. You learn in the local boards and commissions. Many of them are unfilled. Many of our legislative races have one candidate. So, you know, encouragement, we give people hope. Thank you, uh, the question will go to candidate Copeland. The setup on the question, however, in just one example of ordinary citizens, of the power of ordinary citizens and the wisdom of them, um, <clears throat> a year ago, a Pittsburgh high school student suggested that he could save the government four hundred million dollars a year simply by changing the typeface that they use on the documents that they copy. Um, <clears throat> candidate Copeland, you're working as a surveyor, uh, truthing property and boundary lines and finding cornerstones, served as an ordained minister. What wisdom have you acquired from your professional discipline which will help you in your decision-making as president? Well, I think a president has to have a large knowledge base, honestly and personally, of God, his wisdom and his word, and the spiritualness and breakdown within society. There's an order of it. And you can physically see it coming down, stair-stepping through the past several, several decades, cascading down. As a minister, I strive to point out to people where in society we are failing, where we can do better, and how we can do better. Not just before God, but before our fellow man. Because if we're not reaching out to our fellow man first, 
will try and will. And it has been trying and doing that over and over and over again. And it's quite successful. And so a part that I think that we need to address is that on a very strict line, we need to move our government back in the people's thoughts from being a government that is to govern the people to the fact that the government is the people. The ordinary citizen is the one with the power. Our constitutional republic was set up so that the people, the ordinary citizen, as the chairman suggested, we're the ones that tell them. We don't just tell them in the ballot box. We tell them in Washington. We tell them at the state capitol. But the problem is, is are we doing it? Are we willing to step out and stretch beyond the norm? Do we, are we set to stay Republican? Are we set to stay Democrat? Or do we aspire to something better? Do you realize that 29 of the 52 founders were ordained ministers? Would that shock you to find that out? Would it shock you to find out that they structured our constitutional republic based off of the 12 tribes of Israel? Would that shock you? We are biblical. We are a Judeo-Christian nation. And it's high time, as an ordained minister, I seek out to people all the time. Look to your roots, Christian. First and foremost, seek your God. Then reach out to your fellow man as we are here today and encourage them to become a part of something that God's involved in. And then lastly, and I think very, very importantly, we need to ensure that they have the mindset that you and I are the government, not the politicians. Thank you, candidate Copeland. Candidate O'Cannon, courage, principles, compassion, solutions, these usually rest with the people, but not so much the political class. Candidate O'Cannon, you are a registered nurse, a veteran, combat medic. What wisdom have you acquired in your professional discipline which will help you in your decision-making as President of the United States? You know, as a medic, uh, what we have to learn is how to triage. Uh, I'm a jack-of-all-trades. I've had probably 30 different employers over my life. Uh, I've even done some entrepreneurial stuff. But uh, I naturally uh, problem-solve. And... Becoming a medic and a nurse has taught me how to triage, to take a casualty situation, to take something that's, that's falling apart where people are dying and, and where there's tragedy, and you have to sort. You have to figure out who's going to take care of first, who's going to make it, who's not, where are you going to put them, how are you going to treat them, this sort of thing. Uh, I think triage is something that our nation needs badly. And because it's a, a skill that I was naturally born with and then honed through the military and then through the military's nursing program, and then through the university's nursing program, and then through hands-on application. Uh, this ability to triage is, uh, is something that the next president is going to need. And we're going to need it for a lot of reasons. I see two pathways that our, that our country is going down. I see 
the perfect storm has been created for our country. Uh, where financial collapse is going to happen. Uh, where the derivatives market is probably the next bubble. It's $552 billion in this, in this bubble. When this thing busts, can you imagine how it's going to affect the globe? You're going to need someone that knows how to triage, someone who's been thinking about this, and someone who's willing to address it. Head on, straightforward, truthfully, no matter where it leads us. Uh, I'm, I am that guy. Uh, I believe that um, that's the, uh, the, my experience in nursing. I did, I did uh, uh, hospice care. I, I helped hundreds of people and their families go through the dying process. It's, that's something that requires compassion. If you don't have it, that's not where you should be. Um, I've developed compassion, empathy, and love for my fellow beings. I love all you guys. And the only reason I'm doing this, but there's multiple reasons, but I feel I have a duty to do this. I feel inspired to do it, and I feel that I have the ability to do it. I, I am a guy who will be completely transparent and honest with you guys. I, I call on everybody in this world who knows anything about me. I say, any personal story, tell them, good or bad, embarrassing or not. You have to know me. You have to know who it is, who I am. And I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner just like everybody else, but I'm repentant, and I do love God. And I feel that my soul is okay, and this is required of me to do this. Whether I get nominated or elected or not, it's really not the point. It's the duty that, that has to be done, and, uh, and I have the skill set for it. We're going to switch gears here and uh, now get into the actual... <laughs> Um, the question set uh, will be directed to candidate Copeland first. Um, these are our domestic questions. We have four of them, uh, and some of these questions will require a setup. And uh, I'll demonstrate what I mean by that. Idaho consumes nearly twice as much electricity as the state generates. Idaho depends on power supplied over interstate transmission lines. There are capacity expansion projects in way in Idaho. However, the lines are increasingly congested. This question comes from Martha Hudson, Sarasota, Florida, as a matter of national security. No one seems to be mentioning the updating of our electric grid. Candidate Cole, how does this figure into your priorities and what steps would you take? I think that's a great question. Do you? I have a wonderful friend. His name is Charles Campbell. He lives in Ohio. And Charles has a patent on a, what he calls an HVAC building, 70 stories tall, has two massive water tanks on top, and inside the building, it can house as many as 40 hydroelectric turbines. It's wrapped on the outside with solar panels to supply energy for the batteries that, that cause the pump in the bottom to suck the, start the suction of the water back up the building. What happens in this is that 
the water starts free flowing down from the tank, it runs across the turbine, it's generating electricity, and when it hits the bottom, it gets sucked back up, and as it's sucking, it causes a suction throughout the building. It generates enough power. One building generates enough power to supply not just New York City, but the entire New York State. It is set up and designed to put near major metropolitan buildings and to disperse out from there. The price tag on one of these buildings, I know you want to know, right? $250 million. When you put that alongside any other refinery, you put that alongside the cost of a nuclear plant, this overwhelmingly is clean energy, it supplies our grid, it uplifts our grid, and we do not need to be dependent upon Canada, Mexico, or anybody else for our for our energy. America is sustainable with what she has, and we should not be beholden to other countries. I'm going to go a little bit further with this. The oil and gas industry. Four years ago, America began pumping. We became the number one oil-producing country in the world, or any. And in so doing, now you're seeing a little bit of a trickle effect, aren't you, because the price on gas is down, isn't it? Now, they'll make all kinds of excuses. They'll tell you it's this, it's that. But it's the bottom line is because we produce that much more oil and we're pumping it into the system. But here's Here's the tale that they don't tell you about. What happens is, is we're still buying our oil from who? That's right. Okay. Oh, the, the nations overseas. But guess what? They're selling ours to the full major oil companies. And where's it going? Out across the tankers to other places. And so I want to encourage you to realize these are our natural resources, and we, the peoples, need to stand up, shout, and scream, and holler that we want our and not somebody else's. This question will go to Lokander. Let's set up. Wind energy generation has expanded big time in Idaho over the past several years. Wind energy generation now accounts for one-fifth of the power generated in Idaho. We are a wind power exporter. We produce more wind energy than we can use. But with congestive transmission lines, state export markets to the West Coast are damped. New wind energy projects are on hold. So, as for updating our electric grid, candidate O'Candor, how does this figure in your priorities and what steps would you take? Thank you. Uh, you know, with the electric grid, something that probably a lot of us here know about is the threat of the EMV, the solar, the, uh, solar discharge that could bring a total crash to our system. We have the ability to efficiently protect our grid, and we're not doing anything about it. It's not very expensive. I think it's, it's very low. 
think it's like 250 million. I don't know what the number is, but I know that it's it's very low in comparison to the two thirds of the people that will die in 90 in 90 days if this grid goes down. We have enemies uh, that are that are capable of launching a nuclear missile, discharging it above uh, our our country, and then this grid goes down. Uh, so one thing we got to do is protect our winter grid. The other thing is, is wind and solar and, and all this other stuff is great, but really we're we're, if we're asking the wrong question in my opinion. Tesla uh, developed the, the Tesla coil and proved that the atmosphere has electricity. We can draw that electricity out of the atmosphere efficiently, and we can send it to everybody efficiently, even through the air. We can send wireless electricity. So Tesla's name is, but he's been defamed. This guy came up with so many inventions, so many revolutionary technologies, and yet people like uh, Edison, because they want profits, has, has hidden that stuff from us and made, made it look like it's not real technology. And the technology is here. So as your president, I will bring this stuff to life. We will use this technology. Also, nuclear reactors, right? Thorium can be used in a reactor without creating the nuclear waste and the fish planted in sand. So, so to, to go beyond, you know, if we didn't want Tesla's technology, which would not be a good idea in my opinion, but these countries that want, uh, you know, nuclear powers, well, they want it because they want the depleted uranium so they can militarize it and use it in weapons. Well, just to, to, to kind of expand on this thing, thorium reactors are an alternative to nuclear, and there's not that radioactive waste that can be used in weaponizing. So we can distribute North Korea if you want, if you want power, that's really what you want? Okay, well, here's a reactor that's not going to produce the weaponized uh, you know, depleted uranium and, and, uh, and whatnot. Um, as far as uh, wind goes, something that's not talked about, environmentalists love it, but when you look at how many birds are killed by this, the American eagle, our bald eagle, is getting destroyed by these beautiful windmills. I mean, they're beautiful, but they're killing our birds, our national... You know, you're going to talk about you're going to take some guys' ranch because of insects, but you're just going to put up all these windmills and kill our eagles and all the other birds. Look, this is there's a lot to go off of this this particular question. Our energy grid, we can do so much for it, and it's it, we have to do it. The enemy will launch a nuclear weapon at us someday, and we need to prepare for it. Our vehicles, our homes, our personal products, and the electricity grid. This question will go to candidate Myers. The setup. In August 2015, Forbes reported on numerous vulnerabilities in what it called the balkanized U.S. power grid. Efforts, Forbes pointed out, to protect the grid are fragmented, and much of it is outdated. Candidate Meyer, how does this figure into your priorities? What steps would you take? <clears throat> Thank you. Um, first of all, we should decentralize the power grid like the political structure because centralized power, even if it's actually power, is a dangerous concept because it is vulnerable to enemy strikes, as has been amply pointed out. Um, it's no more of a great concern than it is in the state of Alaska because we are closer to North Korea than we are to Washington, D.C. And uh, this last summer, I tried to tell this to people wherever I go. We had a joint military exercise between uh, Chinese and Russian naval fleets in the Bering Sea. And 
You need to stop diverting resources, capital from that economy into dead ends, economic growth, which are you know basically much of what the federal government's doing. So they're diverting our resources into crony capitalism, which makes a certain pre-selected elite extraordinarily wealthy, extraordinarily wealthy, but at the sacrifice of everyone else. And so we need to remove the government as a force of economic reward and punishments, so to speak. We need to um, eliminate these federal programs, which are extra-constitutional, involuntary, at least all the welfare programs that are being mandated and funded by the federal government are really just incentivizing people from seeking any kind of life of their own. It's so sad to see people just sitting back watching get a volunteer now and they're eligible for food stamps in Alaska. They just passed, they just expanded Medicare so that people who have children are fully um, eligible for Medicaid. And so if we continue to do this, why do people need to work? And I say they don't really need to work anymore because the system has advanced to such a Marxist model that the government is there to provide the basic necessities. But the cause of that is the human spirit and the soul, and it's our um, innovation. We're losing our capacity to be critical thinkers. We're losing our capacity to innovate. We're losing our capacity to invest in you know, speculative ventures that are not politically correct or government endorsed. So um, we have to remove these laws, these regulations, these, this interference in our daily living, because our economy is all about our daily living. It's a summary of each of our, our lives, right? How we manage our budget, home economics, you know, in mass, right? So um, most people know how to manage their own money and prefer to do that themselves. So at least that's how I grew up. And if most people aren't that way anymore, it's incumbent upon us to educate them as to the benefits of autonomy, you know. And I guess maybe it's a sad statement. I was in the, taking a, a walk of the Anne Frank Human Rights Memorial before this began, and um, there were several statements that struck me. But one was to the effect that those who have known freedom all of their lives usually aren't nearly as passionate about freedom as those who have always dreamed about it and have never had it. So maybe we're going to come to a tipping point where people are going to realize that we've lost most of all of our freedoms and how are we going to restore this? And of course, part of that is the economic component and again, back to decentralization of authority and power. Thank you. Question will go to candidate Copeland on setup. Republicans have hammered the Obama administration on labor force participation. The administration responds with spin. It claims that labor force participation, the collapse of it, is the result of demographics. Baby boomers are to blame. In other words, nothing can be done about it. However, labor participation by young Americans age 16 to 19, the entry-level workers just starting out, is catastrophic. Over 11 million youth 
are not employed. Resumes are dying on the vine. Work skills are not uh, being picked up at a vital time for an entire generation. Young workers are not in the job force. Older workers are not in the job force. 95 million Americans are not participating. Candidate Colton, what are you going to do to get Americans back into the job force? Huge question, right? Here's some big answers. At least I think they're big, big answers. First of all, when you allow your borders to be wide open, and anybody else can come in, and they have special preferential treatment given to them because of taxation credits to business. Businesses can hire people from overseas and get paid by the government to have them here. While American citizens, it's a, it's a hardness for them to have a job for a company because the federal government doesn't pay them to have an American citizen. Low-paying jobs are being picked up by illegal aliens. They're being picked up by Islam. And they are working when our people are not. So how do we fix it? Well, the first thing we have to do is bring our military home. We have to do what our immigration law requires that President Ronald Reagan sign, and that is militarize all of our borders. We have to be compassionate and loving to people, as I said before, but we have to deport. We must deport because they are the ones that have the jobs. Our young people are growing up without jobs in order for our money to be outsourced to foreign countries by young people, middle-aged people alike. The next thing that we have to do is bring back the constitutional tax code. Article 1, Section 8 and 9 must be back in place. Do you realize that in 1916, the Supreme Court ruled not once but twice on the uh, 16th Amendment? The first time that they ruled on it, gave their opinion, and it, it was this, that the 16th Amendment was not replacing anything that Article 1, Section 8 and 9 gave to the Congress. It just amplified the fact that Congress had the ability to levy taxes. And then in the second one, they were very much pointed even more, and they said, Congress, you do not get to decide on income tax. Why do you think on W-2s, instructions? Why do you think on those instructions it deals more with foreigners than it does residents of the United States? And so we've got to... Wake up, America, to the fact that we are being shanghaied, and these are the steps to get our jobs back for American citizens first. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. The question will go to Senator O'Banner. Senator. Working America sees the official jobs numbers as phony, we said that. Youth have lost opportunity, we said that. They've lost confidence, and in many cases, they've lost hope. One excuse, or another excuse, that the current administration floats 
is that education of American workers is somehow deficient, and that's the other problem that explains the workforce participation collapse. But <clears throat> labor force participation by workers 25 years and older, holding bachelor's degrees or higher, is also declining, and that decline has been taking place for 20 years or more. The recent rate of decline is increasing. Nothing seems to be on tap to resolve this question. Tanneo Cantor, what are you going to do to get Americans back into the workforce? You know, one thing about the workforce numbers is that uh, you know, prior to World War II, uh, it was mostly males in the workforce. Now it's doubled, and and the numbers that they're giving us are pretty skewed. This uh, factor, though, are, are people in higher education are, are, are increasingly getting jobs that, uh, that don't require a bachelor's degree. All right, look, take NAFTA uh, and, and other, uh, other plans that our government has come up with. We may hit, we may about five times cheaper for a business to send their jobs overseas. Uh, than to have them here. So what business that wants to save money isn't going to do that? Plus, they don't have to provide health care or environmental protection, right? They don't have to do the insurance. It becomes really, really cheap to hire people from out of our country. So that has to, if we're going to do, you know, some of the, the people would not have to say that, uh, you know, we have to give them jobs to buy our stuff. And this stuff is, like, all the numbers are skewed. So look, um, if we're going to send our jobs overseas, uh, you know, I'm not really, I want to get government out of business, of, of controlling businesses as much as possible. But on the international side of things, I think we need to require that they, they take care of these people outside as much as they're required to take care of the people on the inside. That simple requirement will bring those jobs back, except where they're really actually needed outside the country, where there's people with skill sets that we really need. If, we're, if we level the playing field between us and, and, our, and our foreigners, you know, the jobs are naturally going to come back because then you have the transportation issues and they're paying insurance, all this stuff. Um, the biggest thing, though, is to get the government out of controlling businesses uh, on almost every, every aspect of it. Doing that is going to stimulate the economy. It's going, to, it's going to get businesses to hire people. The other thing is to start, start to encouraging people to start their own businesses at home. Um, you know, the future is... is, is can, can go a couple ways. We may have a big disaster, you know, before everything gets nice. And it, I think you'd be better off if you develop a skill set at home uh, and started to try to actually employ people yourself than um, than seek a job with somebody else. Uh, <coughs> really, there's there's a lot that we can do. But the biggest aspect of this, the biggest the critical uh, key to it, is, is the level of playing field between inside and outside our country and to get the government out of regulating businesses. Well, our candidates have survived two questions on domestic issues. We're going to move to a third. <clears throat> and yes, we know how to cite the Constitution. Uh, this question will go to candidate Copeland upon setup. 
may take a while on this one. In 2012, the Constitution Party's national campaign was merely a single issue, illegal immigration. It is still a problem. On February 18th, 10 days ago, 2016, The Atlantic just published an article entitled, Can the Welfare State Survive the Refugee Crisis? This question is from Robert Jenner, host of Barnes Logic Political Talk Radio in Cincinnati. In 2013, the Federation of American Immigration Reform claimed illegal immigration cost the United States $113 billion. $84 billion of that cost, 75% of it, is borne by state and local governments. Obama's DREAM Act allows illegal immigrants to pay in-state college tuition. That is a cost. That is only one of the costs. Then there's the issue of giving voting rights to undocumented immigrants. Candidate Cope, what is your stance on the cost of illegal immigration and how do you stop it? Well, as I alluded to just a minute ago, it is federal law and it's also the responsibility of the federal government to ensure that our citizens' rights are secured first and foremost. That's why we can't have open borders. They have to be militarized, as I shared with you just a minute ago. That will free up border security to do their job. That will free up ISIS to do their job, and that will free that will give the courts something to do uh, by order of deportation. The cost to our medical profession is just astronomical because the illegals here are taking advantage of it in full swing. They go to the ER, they're not required to have health insurance. And so those figures that he is referring to has a lot to do with two major uh, places in our society. One is the hospitals, the other one is the uh, educational system. I'll give you a, a personal note here. My youngest son, I'm not going to mention the town, but we we live in Texas. He was attending uh, a local ISD, and in that ISD, he was in classes that that had kids in it where they were there were 22, 25 kids per class. And I got to flipping through his photo album, uh, you know, from school, and lo and behold, there were three classes. And all they had in them was six kids apiece. So I asked my young then fourth grader, what's the deal? And he said, well, they can't speak English. So they get a separate teacher, and they get a room all of their own. Well, my son has to sit there. He speaks English. And so he takes 22 to 24 people uh, in his classroom. Now, 
Imagine if you would those resources that were being used for three classes of 18 people being used for our children. It would save the local ISD so much money. And the mandates that are coming down from the federal government would disappear overnight because they were the local ISD would not have the responsibility of the illegals. So the federal government has failed the people, and we the people have failed ourselves because we are not holding Democrats and Republicans responsible. Thank you. Thank you, Candidate Toby. This question will go to Candidate O'Hare on setup. The cost of illegal immigrants in the United States is anyone's guess. Open border advocates still quote a 1997 National Academy finding, 1997. They claim an $80,000 net benefit per illegal immigrant but not so fast. This month's Atlantic article points out that their benefit model in order to obtain that number had to be calculated out 300 years. The Atlantic reports 660,000 illegal immigrants cost each American household $10 per house, we have 118 million households in this country and a whole lot more illegal immigrants in it than that. Candidate O'Hanlon, what is your stance on the cost of illegal immigration and how do you stop it? Okay, well, the cost, I think I think we're waking up. We recognize that that our government is not doing it. They're not treating us truthfully. They're not providing us with the true facts and what's really going on. It's obvious to us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be uh, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars into debt. Uh, as far as the cost goes, um, you know, we need to – so triage comes is, is the first thing I think. We've got to stop, stop the bleeding, right? We need to secure our borders. We need to create a zone. We need to treat it seriously. And we need to – the people that we have here that need to go back, we need to bio. We need to bio tag these people through a system that's uh, called the Hyde system, and we retinal scan them, take their fingerprints. We can even take a little DNA sample, take their picture, and that becomes their ID. We got it permanently. We need to tag these people, and then if they're criminals, we need to lock them up. We don't need to send them back to be let go wherever we send them. We need to lock them up. We have a responsibility to do that for the protection of each other. Now, the people we send back, their countries need to start picking up the bill. That's my position on this. And then, of course, if they're not going to do that, then we're going to deal with them uh, however we have to deal with them. Um, the costs of, of illegal immigration are, are greater than just the cost of dollars. Uh, they're hurting our society in so many ways. And this is America, land of the free, home of the brave, right? We stand for the Constitution. We stand for life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, among other things. And these people are trying to bring their country into our country and turn it into wherever they came from. I think we're all tired of that. So we need to look, basically, as far as the cost goes, it's, uh, it's monumental, and it's going to take a monumental to rid our country of this problem. Uh, what I intend to do with immigration is uh, these uh, refugees,
refugees that we're bringing in, not the cost probably not even calculated into this. Okay, these refugees, right? They're Muslim refugees. I don't know about you guys, but do you guys see any Muslims getting beheaded over there? No. How are they refugees? I see Christians, Jews, atheists, and homosexuals being murdered and tortured and slaughtered. So the thing to do is to biotag these, these refugees, put them into our FEMA camps, sort them. Ten percent of them are supposed are 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 estimated to be radicalized. Ten percent of these people we're bringing in are radicalized. And do you think they're not going to radicalize their buddies that are bringing in too? So they've got to go back. Saudi Arabia can take care of their people. They have lots of tent cities that can deal with it. Um, that's their responsibility. Christians and these others, we, they're welcome here. We can bring them in and we can, we can deal with those who are true refugees. This needs to be a global effort. But in our country, that's what we've got to do. Um, uh, gosh, there's so much that we actually need to do. The other thing for immigration, it needs to basically stop. Outsider refugees coming in here, it's got to stop until we deal with our problem. And then once we've dealt with it, we start going through Ellis Island again. That becomes our golden gate that you've got to go through. Only a certain amount of people can get through there, and that will reduce the flow. Thank you, Kennedy. Okay. Question goes to candidate Myers following setup. A certain Republican front runner, known more for his insults than for any particular solutions on the event, has claimed. 30 to 34 million aliens. He was taken to task by the press. Left-oriented politicos used a much lower number, 11 million. But that is still a lot. Pew Research claimed that illegal immigrants are more likely to be employed than Americans, and the open border advocates have seized upon this data. But they ignore that illegals are more likely to be uneducated. As the Atlantic article pointed out 10 days ago, <laughs> uneducated, low-skilled illegals are a cost, not a benefit, to an economy. Candidate Myers, what is your stance on the cost of illegal immigration and how do you stop it? Well, again, the cost is not simply measured in dollars. It's far too high altogether. When I travel this country, it's no longer recognizable to me in many areas. Um, English is not spoken. The address is far different than what I'm accustomed to. And the culture is just shifting. Obviously, the numbers are being misreported, underreported, I would say. They're probably over 30 aliens. We need to freeze all immigration at this time until we can sort out the situation. We are going to have to come up with some kind of identification process. But being mindful of our constitutional security, the privacy of the citizens of this country, and I would maintain that citizenship does matter. We should not treat those who are here illegally the same the same rights, privileges, and benefits that are accorded to our citizens who are legal. And who are who comprise our government and our culture. So, you know, I do 
don't know why leftist elites are doing what they're doing other than that they're trying to force the world into a global state without borders, and that's what we're really losing on, I think. And I think you can clearly see that in Europe with what's happening there. They, you know, disarmed their populace to a great extent. They've made hate speech illegal, so to speak. They've broadened the definition of hate speech we're seeing that here as well. The courts have ruled against right-wing, so-called right-wing political parties. And I would have to add at this juncture that one of my, I call it an anti-endorsement, we come from the Southern Poverty Law Center, who listed me as part of a hate group in Alaska for being the founder of the Alaska Constitution Party. So anyway, you know, we're seeing this cultural confusion being forced upon us. We are in an identity crisis as a nation. We're in an identity crisis of individuals. We need to reassert and reclaim our, her- our heritage, our legacy that we leave. If we continue on this path, then we'll not be an America. It's probably, we're probably within a generation of seeing dissolution, you know, whether it's through invasion, economic collapse, apathy, you know, and the corruption of the system, I think that's really the danger. We're witnessing a replay of the, the Roman experience, you know, in the Roman Republic and how it degenerated into an empire. And that had to do with foreign adventurism, illegal immigration, and bread and circuses, which we have plenty of. And that is the answer that the politicians are giving us, for more bread and circuses. There's really nothing over here to see, keep moving on. You know? Refugees, they they're enhancing our society. Well, no, they are not. And while I do support legal immigration and legitimate asylum, we must stop immigration at this time entirely to protect our people. Thank you. Thanks, thanks. Well, our candidates have uh, survived three questions on the domestic. Uh, we have one more. Are you gentlemen comfortable? Ready to go? Okay. <clears throat> this question is uh, going to candidates Copeland. Shut up. The Obama administration ran the money printing presses full throttle for over one and a half terms in office. Our nation has never increased its money supply at this rate. Three trillion dollars under one president. The financial markets are in uncharted and treacherous waters at this point. Negative interest rates looking like they're going globally. The rosy scenarios from this administration also seem phony. The economy is basically stalled despite a fresh $3 trillion in payment. And the working class Americans know too well. This particular question is derived from two questions. One submitted by Walter Myers, Bullhead City, Arizona, and the other by a distinguished young gentleman named Tyler Ricks from Meridian, Idaho. Candidate Copeland, what steps will you take 
to bring monetary policy into compliance with the Constitution, what are you going to do about the Federal Reserve? Wow, I've been waiting on this question. <laughs> How are you did great? <laughs> First of all, the Federal Reserve has absolutely no constitutional merit whatsoever. If I write a personal check, I have to make sure that that money is in the bank or I pay a penalty or I go to jail, depending on the amount I guess I wrote. But when the Federal Reserve writes a check or prints money, they count it as an asset, and they count it against my home, your home, your income level, my income level. Do you realize that right now, per household, we each owe, according to the Federal Reserve, based on $20 trillion that we owe, around $59,000 per household? That's more than I make in a year. I don't know about you, but I don't have $59,000 to pay to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve Act, when it was initiated by Congress, has within it built-in systems to eliminate the Federal Reserve itself. Congress can do it with the stroke of a pen. We as American citizens need to remind those in Congress that we want them to get rid of it. Because when they get rid of it, this is what people don't realize. The American government will seize the assets, seize the notes. They will forgive that debt that we supposedly owe on fake counterfeit money that's being generated. The Constitution calls for the Congress of the United States to coin money, not paper money. I think that's a huge, important issue, don't you? If, if, if we coin it, they also have to decide on the weight and measures of the elements that are being used in the coin and what the value of it is. So what did they do? They threw that off to who? The Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve banking system said, hey, we're just going to write a check and let you have it. It's going to be your, you became the resource for the paper money. Your livelihood became the precious metal. What we must do and what must have to happen immediately is that the Federal Reserve, and, and I will go all the way back to Kennedy, Kennedy signed to get rid of the Federal Reserve, and what happened? Two weeks later, he was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. What happened? His benefactor came in, signed a piece of paper saying, let's reinstate the Federal Reserve. So that shows and demonstrates to you their priority. My question to you is, as the real governing people, what is going to be your decision? I have to admit I uh, have gotten out of order, so I'm going to try to recover my order here by simply keeping on. Not that you would know that unless I told you. So anyway, uh, that's open government for you. <clears throat> this will go to uh, candidate O'Connor on setup. M1 money stock is the money in supply, the money supply in circulation. <clears throat> 
in an economy. Its velocity measures the number of times one dollar is spent to buy goods and services. Decreasing M1 velocity means less everyday consumer transactions are taking place. M1 velocity has collapsed. It is also back to the malaise days of Mr. Jimmy Carter. Clearly, MMT, modern money theory, does not work as advertised. Candidate O'Connor, what steps will you take to bring monetary policy into compliance with the Constitution, and what are you going to do about the Federal Reserve? Okay, so like Scott uh, mentioned, the, uh, the Constitution does not allow for our government to print a fiat currency, which we're on and, and the world is on right now. So uh, it has to end. Uh, what I'm calling for is a jubilee of debt forgiveness. We all recognize hundreds of, like, more than $20 trillion we're in debt. When you look at actually what we owe, it's hundreds of trillions of dollars. We got, the, like I mentioned before, the derivatives bubble, which is going to pop. All of this is going to come, this, this house of cards is going to come down. So I'm calling for a jubilee of debt forgiveness within our country and then out to our alliance. Um, and then a return to the gold standard, which does not include the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve has to go. And yeah, you know what? They're willing to, to assassinate our guys that, that stand for it. Well, I'm willing to take that, that bullet for us. I'm willing to advance the cause in order for us to get back to our constitutional government governance, which, uh, which we deserve. They didn't like my response there. No? No, I don't mind. <laughs> anyway, so what I'm saying is uh, Federal Reserve has got to go. And uh, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, the Federal Reserve has got to go. we got to restore our country to, to a gold standard. Um, this, uh, this Federal Reserve, what it's done to us, is it's taken away our ability to uh, uh, to have control and rein in the powers of our government. You know, if the Federal Reserve can print all the money it wants to print, then why are we being taxed at all? You know, you could, you could do away with taxation and they could just print what they need and we'd all pay an equal share of inflation. You know, so Federal Reserve, it's unconstitutional. We don't, we're not able to audit it. And this is a deadly institution that actually threatens to collapse our country if we do anything about it. So the time's come for us to stand together and unite. I will advance this cause, and if I fall, the next guy advances it. We, we want to stand for somebody who's going to go ahead and, and pen in, okay, it's okay now. So it, uh, Federal Reserve, uh, money, I mean, there, there's a lot going on, and, uh, and it's going to take massive changes in order to get back to where we should be. And uh, uh, that's about where I'm at on that. Thank you, Canada. This question goes to candidate Myers. Set up. Some economists say the Obama administration's unconventional monetary policy reinforced the recession. Their policy of acceptably low interest rates did not work like they claimed, not even close to shovel red. 
velocity is now 69 times below what their model estimated it would be. Collapsing monetary, uh, collapsing money velocity has offset all of the ink and all of the paper and all of that easy money lies in multinational bank vaults as ordinary Americans are having to ration their everyday expenditures. Candidate Myers, what steps do you take to bring monetary policy into compliance with the Constitution, and what are you going to do about the Federal Reserve? Um, I also believe in returning to the gold standard or some commodity standards. Precious minerals are the obvious choice. Um, beyond that, we simply have to stop those presents. And um, the Federal Reserve, I, I kind of like the Icelandic model. The uh, bankers were actually imprisoned there. And <laughs> yeah, and their economy has uh, recovered the best of all the nations that have recovered under the banking malaise or whatever you want to call it. So we need to realize that there is this small again elite who's trying to manipulate the governments of the world through the financial system, which is at its core Marxist ideology actually. And so they're using international finance to implement Marxism globally. And that's what we're witnessing. And they're collapsing our societies one nation, one state, and one community at a time in order to Dependency, foster dependency among the populace so that the people no longer go to their natural means of production, but they look <coughs> to meet all of their needs. So as long as you know we continue along with that mentality, we're going to see this process of artificially printing money to um, expand these social programs to foster this dependency to enable these politicians to be reelected so that they can serve the beginning of their masters who are these international financiers. And um, that's, that's what's happening in my estimation. So um, when I was running for governor, I advocated that I spend the last ten minutes at Polar, you know, because of the sort of dollars, that the uh, Polar of gold and silver and copper have three different coins as our currency and um, to move us away from this dependency upon the banks and the manipulations Part of their lives, and you know, the media is, is so often complicit in this deception because they are not reporting on the actual facts. They are not reporting on the actual, um, you know, these statistics that have been presented. They're skewed at best, but probably, you know, absolutely fictitious at worst. Um, it's a cynical play to keep the true information from the people because they know that once the people are aware of what they're truly doing to us, there would probably be a violent revolution, which I do not advocate. However, they are pushing society into a corner, and I see that they cannot continue to do so with impunity. So that's another reason why I'm running, because I think we need to be active in trying to make changes, legitimate changes, lawfully in the system while we still can to prevent a violent um, revolution from, as a counter-revolution. And I see that as a state possibility, unfortunately. So, um, you know, the monetary system, everyone's dependent upon it. And um, as it's manipulated, so is society manipulated. So we have to remove the um, legal immunity from the bank system. Thank you. 
by the domestic questions part of this uh, forum. Are you gentlemen comfortable? Do we need to take a small break here or small break? Small break. Five minutes, people. I don't know what they were doing. That was channel two. Was it? Yeah. I could see the two on the on the thing. Channel two? Yeah. You're not just listening to a show, you're part of the powerful voice of the conservative conversation on Blog Talk Radio. Nothing worthwhile has ever been accomplished without teamwork. PJNet invites you to help make a difference by adding your voice to the team grassroots conservatives working together to take our country back. To find out more, check out the PJNet hashtag and visit our website at patriotjournalist.com. Let PJNet add our muscle to your hustle. And definitely, folks, check out the Patriot Journalist Network by going to www.patriotjournalist.com. And also, uh, if you are listening live or if you are listening uh, on the podcast, definitely go to the website at www.bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com, and we can uh, share the link either through the Twitter uh, where there's a button on the home page where you can tweet out the show, uh, which will have the link there, as well as you can go to the contact page. And while scrolling down, you can copy and paste, and that will have all the different links we've provided and send it out to your email list. As well as if you are new to uh, the show here on Blog Talk Radio, there is a follow button where you can just click, and you can be a follower of the show, in which periodically you will get uh, emails from that as well. And also on the website, check out the Bard's Logic uh, Media Room, where there's a bunch of different articles. You can subscribe uh, to the articles there as well, to the newsroom. So check that out. And so when there's updates, uh, we're kind of beta testing that. So if uh, you do ever have any questions or comments, definitely leave me a message uh, either through Facebook or Twitter or through the contact page. Uh, to let me know if you experience any problems so I can uh, get that worked on. And so they were saying they're only taking about a five-minute break. Uh, they should be back to it. So let's go ahead and hear, uh, put them back on and so we can hear more of that. And it looks like they may have well muted us. And so we are uh, presuming, at least I am, that they are still on a break there. And so I'm presuming that the audio will come back uh, when they're done with the break. And so anyway, so I hope you're enjoying the live coverage of the 2016 presidential primary debates for the Constitution Party there in Boise, Idaho. And uh, if you want to hear more about uh, the Constitution Party, we've interviewed many uh, folks from there uh, back in 2012 and those podcasts from those interviews are still available, uh, so you can also check that out. And also, uh, you can also check out from the Bard's Logic Political Talk page on Facebook. If you haven't gone there and liked the page uh, yet, I'd uh, appreciate uh, you doing so as well. And so we're still not getting any feed from there, so I'm presuming that they still have us on a hold while they are 
uh, taking their slight break. And so if you like, if we got some time, if you want to make any comments, uh, give us a call at 347-945-7428 and make a few comments. Uh, but, of course, once the debate gets back on, we hear some more audio coming in, then we will, uh, of course, go immediate back, immediately back to the debate. And so if you like to comment, I do see we do have some callers. So push the one on your number dial if you'd like to make some comments on the debate that you've heard so far. As I said, we'll, we have to uh, we'll go straight back to the debate when they come in. But uh, Pierce, we may have a few minutes. So if you'd like to do that, uh, fine. But if you just want to hold off, of course, that is uh, fine as well. And so we'll just uh, hold off and wait till they get their little break done. And it looks like we still have about another hour and 20 minutes uh, left of the debate. And so uh, we'll hear the rest of that when that comes in. And, you know, we earlier we had, uh, you know, an audio there for uh, for the promotion of the debate. I'm sure we'll uh, get some more information on other candidates that will come on to the show, perhaps some local candidates. Because, of course, as you know, you know, we are in a, of course, presidential uh, campaign, uh, but we're also going to be some local campaigns. So, it's important to check out your other candidates and may even be able to make a bigger difference uh, locally by supporting the local uh, alternative parties, such as the Constitution Party and your locality. I, I know in the last ballot that I made some votes on, uh, there was a number of different candidates other than those from the Republican and Democrat Party uh, where they were on there. And so we'll... Uh, look to see if there's any on your ballots. I'm sure you've seen them. At least I've known I've seen all mine. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to just do a little programming uh, notes on here and check some things out. So why, are, why we are waiting for that, uh, I know back when the show first started in 2012, uh, we had uh, the award-winning uh, vocalist and songwriter Aubrey Ashburn on the show. Uh, you may be familiar with uh, her music because we do play it on the show at the close of every show there. And you can hear the interview on that uh, by going, of course, again to the podcast. So what I'm going to do now is while we're waiting to hear uh, back from them after their little break. Oh, looks like we may be having. No, never mind. Looks like they're coming back. I was going to play an a song by Aubrey Ashburn that you can hear more of her music by going to www.aubreyashburn.com. Uh, but it looks like uh, we are getting some audio from the debate season. Are you are you there? You guys, uh, mic open. Yeah, I'm. They're going to start again. So okay. I'll put you back on. Oh, they're getting ready to start back up. In 2013. Great. Okay, let's get back to the debate, folks. These United States are no longer in a war on terror. U.S. troops, however, are still on the ground in Afghanistan. They're in Pakistan, and they are in a number of other stands formed out of the former Soviet Union. They're now in Africa. They're heading back into Iraq. Syria isn't even openly discussed. This question comes from Mr. Andrew Raymond in Buffalo, New York. For disclosure, Mr. Raymond is a member of the Constitution Party of New York. 
as an OEF and an OIF veteran, I am concerned with the health and well-being of our troops. Candidate Cope, what would you do about our troops' involvement in these seemingly endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? And what about our bases overseas? It is very clear that the Constitution Party does not believe in foreign entanglements. That includes trade agreements, that includes militarily. The only time that the military, our military, should ever be involved in any instance of war is if there has been a formal declaration of war made from Congress. That gives the president the authority to act militarily. Besides that, there is no grounds for our troops to still be there except this one little trick, and that is we are called UN peacekeepers. Our troops are not UN. Our troops are United States military personnel. It is emphatically imperative that we bring all of our troops home. We should not leave any overseas. If our allies do not like it, guess what? Our allies are not our allies. They are our enemy as well. The reason why I say that is because an ally should not desire for America's best to prop them up when they, their own citizens, will not do their own profit. And so I firmly believe we must bring our troops home when we bring them home. This has been my stance for over 12 years. Our military personnel are the greatest in the world at what they do. When they come home, they need a time to relax, deep down. They need to decompress. They should have the absolute best of health care. I called for the abolishment of the Veterans Administration for years. And the reason for that is they do not do their due diligence for our personnel. I think that there are a lot of privatization hospitals and doctors that would best benefit our troops. But they should be given that choice, shouldn't they? After all, the U.S. Congress, the President, and the Supreme Court justices get those same things. How much greater should it be for the men and women of uniform who actually fight for our freedom and our rights? They are the ones that are in front of the bullets for you and I and for our congressmen. So I'm calling on Congress, the President, and the, and the Supreme Court justices to either downgrade their health care or to uplift our military. Thank you. Question goes to candidate Okay. Question set up, but it's going to be brief. We remind our audience of the proper authority to declare war rests in the Congress. Candidate Okay, what would you do about our troops' involvement in these endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and what about our bases overseas? Okay. Uh, actually, the solution is pretty simple. We bring our troops home, uh, and we secure our borders with these troops, and uh, we do give them a chance to recuperate, rest, 
uh, to renew, to retool, get their vehicles up to shape, to train with whatever new technology we have. Um, let's see. Uh, sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought. What else was there? Bases overseas. And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So bases overseas, we close them, bring our troops home. Uh, and as far as our involvement overseas, uh, we bring our troops home. We, uh, as we bring our troops home, we rescue the true refugees that are over there and we bring them home. Uh, we prepare for the war that the enemy is, is, uh, has put upon us. Uh, jihadism is radicalism. These, these people are determined to fight us and they won't stop. So we need to take their threat seriously. Iran has already declared war on us. I mean, they've all they, they fought laws everywhere. We need to take these threats seriously. Uh, we need to prepare for battle. And, and our troops do not need to be outside the country. Uh, we, we should have learned our lesson from when we pulled out of Vietnam and we left all the, the Vietnamese uh, supporters of us there. We left them to the Viet Cong to be hurt, to be uh, put into put into captivity and killed. Uh, it took Reagan in order to bring these people into our country, the rest of the many that were left. Um, when we left Iraq, we did the same thing. We created a vacuum and what happened? You know, ISIS moves in, the whole Taliban deal, and, and when we left Christians and Jews there to be massacred. And so we have genocide going on with our, with our leading this vacuum. So as we leave, we bring as many Christian and Jewish refugees as we possibly can with us, and uh, and we secure our borders. I mean, it's, it's really that simple. We solidify our, our alliance. We, we have an open time for uh, for every country to declare their alliance or their, their status of being an enemy uh, and not responding uh, and will we'll, we'll label you as an enemy. So the UN got to go. It's unfortunate that we brought all of our enemies together under that, under that uh, umbrella. Uh, but you know, if they stick it out with the UN, we pretty much know who our enemy is. Um, so bring our troops home, let them uh, uh, retool, and uh, and prepare for a battle that is imminent. Uh, basically, I got. Thank you, This question goes to candidate Byers. So. As of last summer, 6,852 Americans, military, were killed in this war, not war, on terrorism. That depends on what your definition of war is. Mr. Raymond in New York has a point. We're 14 and a half years into whatever you want to call this, Candidate Myers, what would you do about our troops' involvement in these endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and what about our bases overseas? Well, again, we are following the Roman imperial model, which led to the downfall of Rome, and we have over, I don't know, something like 130 bases, at least, bases in at least 130 nations, something like that. It's quite a problem, really. So I would agree that we need to um, start closing those foreign bases and bringing those troops home. And because it was never our destiny to be the policemen of the world, our military is through our defense, not to impose whatever our government wants to impose on whatever regional people 
never meant that our republic would be utilized as mercenaries, essentially, through, again, the goal would be to manifest their control increasingly. So, um, yes, we need to defund that, the military ventureism, but we, on the other hand, we do need to support our troops and their health care and the promises that we made to them. And I see so many of them in my line of work. I don't know, something like 22 a day of being suicide in this country. That's some outrageous figure of, of veterans. And um, because they're being put in these horrible situations that they never should have been in in the first place. And they're being brought back and they're being told that, well, you have PTSD, so we're going to need to medicate you. And oh, by the way, hand over your guns. You know? So how is that fostering our rule of law and our constitutional heritage? So clearly, you know, our so-called allies need to defend themselves. Most of them have the technology and the capability to do so. Um, the Japanese and the Western Europeans have been subsidized. The defense has been subsidized um, since the 40, so, you know, that's like, what, 70-plus years now we've been subsidizing them. No wonder they were able to develop their economies, and that's not necessarily bad because they have developed economies, but why should it be more back? And why should our infrastructure collapse in the meantime? Look at the bridges that are failing. Just simple things are, are being unattended to because all of our resources are going towards these foreign ventures and towards these domestic um, welfare programs. But again, is it going to meet the needs of our citizens? No, it's not. It needs to be directed towards other people that really are have an antithetical worldview from our traditional um, American lifestyle. So, um, you know, putting a military in another country to fight does not equal to defending the Constitution, and it does not equal being a patriot. So we need to reassess that whole concept. You know, we can't have to demonize the military, but it will demonize that point eventually. It's wrong, and it's just wrong our country. It's just wrong the world. It's not bringing us any friends. It's just making more money. Thank you, Kathy Myers. International question two. This one will be directed at candidate Okander. Set up trade. America is drowning in an alphabet soup of trade agreements. GATT, GATS, WTO, NAFTA, APEC, TRIPS, SPN, and now. TPP. TPP was voted on by both incumbent Idaho U.S. senators in a classic passage to find out what's in it. Free trade sounds good. But despite political lobbies, the United States has not had one single solitary annual foreign trade surplus balance since 1975 after Nixon opened up America to China. We have an $11 trillion trade hold. Apparently, half a trillion dollar trade deficits year after year are considered America's level 
trading field. This question from Constitution Party of Idaho, Kootenai County, Chapter 10808. What steps are you willing to take to produce an annual positive foreign trade balance for these United States? Okay, so we have, uh, we have, there was a time in America, it's in 1975, right? There was a time in America where we had a positive cash flow in this area. So it seems, seems kind of relatively simple as we roll back to a time when it worked. Um, I mean, in addition to that, the things I mentioned before about, uh, you know, really free trade is not fair deals. We're, we're, we're writing things into these trade agreements that are meant to hurt us and our alliance. And it's time that we recognize that, honestly, we have a cabal running our country. The enemy has got in and let all his friends in, and they're giving away everything we have. So it's time to roll back in a major way. Uh, and, and so, you know, this is a – I can, with the stroke of a pen as president, I can undo every executive order that's ever been done up till now. So the executive orders, for one thing, are not law. The trade agreements can be rolled back. We can undo these things, and, uh, and it has to happen. We, have a, we, we can look at our history and find out what worked and go back to those, uh, to those examples in time. Um, I'm going to yield the rest of my time. That's basically what I do. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. This question will go to candidate Myers. Set up the Constitution Party has roundly condemned the Trans-Pacific Partnership, as it's called, TPP. Uh, resolutions that's nationally, uh, individual states have done so. Um, we want to point out that the authority to regulate foreign trade constitutionally rests in Congress, not the White House. But it is the executive office that is cutting these deals. Secondly, our constituents here in Idaho, by an overwhelming 88%, and that's a statistically relevant sample, ladies and gentlemen, say it is time to fix America's foreign trade. They want fair trade, not free trade. Kennedy Myers, what steps are you willing to take to produce an annual positive foreign trade balance for these United States? I get the easy question. Um, well, first of all, you're right that the president does not have the authority to be making these trade deals, and most of these trade deals being made in secret is not correct either. So, um, you know, I kind of go back to a question that was asked in another debate we recently had with South Baptist and uh, um, the Illegitimacy, let's see, that's the great father. Uh, the treason involved with our, our government officials is basically the point that these are treasonous acts that are being committed under the guise of free trade that they're selling us out to our enemies. You can clearly see them since the administration when they uh, provided many of our military and industrial secrets to the Chinese 
and we saw the wholesale dismantling of our um, industrial base and uh, actual factories that being shipped over to Asia. And so um, we need to really we need to launch investigations into these trade deals. And if I were president, I would have the attorney general initiate investigations into who was doing what, who got what, you know, how was this accomplished uh, in broad daylight before all of us. How did we get here? That, you know, these secret deals, this is illegitimate authority um, that has led us into the situation we're at now. So trade, you know, we need to have tariffs as legitimate uh, article of the Constitution as far as how we are to regulate trade. Um, free trade is a misnomer. It has so many other things like the Patriot Act, like, you know, the National Defense Authorization Act, all that. You know, they made these things, they give them labels to make them sound good and beneficial, but the more, the better they sound, the worse they actually turn out to be. So um, we need to reassess this whole process. Everything needs to be done above board. How is it that the Congress can vote on something without even reading it? They don't understand. I mean, it's like, like hope and like dream and then hope it's real. You know, but what is it? Oh, well, once you pass it, and we'll, we'll print the rules, and we'll print the law. After we pass it, people will see it, and the regulatory authorities will start making regulations, and so that will be multiple years long process, and then we'll end up with whatever we end up with, but really there's no public process involved, and so um, special interests grow richer, the middle class is squeezed to is becoming rarer, and I think that is actually an overall plan is to dismantle the United States middle class. I don't think our, our leaders are looking for our best interest. And so um, I guess we need to investigate what they're doing and what they're doing. It needs to be held accountable. Thank you. This question, uh, after setup, will go to uh, candidate Colvin. Uh, Idaho does have a vested interest here. Lewiston, Idaho, is the furthest inland port on the West Coast. Idaho commodity wheat is being shipped to Asia to process. Those are value-added manufacturing jobs that are being sent down the river. In 1970, 70% of American milling was done either in family-owned or cooperative-owned mills before all of the alphabet trade deals. By 1992, multinationals had seized the American milling we now have an oligarchy in the classic definition of the term. Mid-sized farms are going out. Mega-corporate farms are coming in. Small Idaho cities are closing down. Candidate Copeland, what steps will you take to produce an annual positive foreign trade balance for the United States? Well, first of all, as president, one of my policies is, is very straightforward. We have to look at each individual so-called free trade agreement, find out where 
we are getting stuck in where they are prospering. And then we need to reverse that trend by dissolving those trade agreements and renewing it. We're going to have trade and, and renew those. It needs to be for the benefit of Americans first, not foreign investment, not foreign election money coming to Republicans and Democrats from overseas. So here's here's the first step. I hate to interrupt folks, but if you don't call in in the next minute at three four seven nine four five seven four two eight, your audio of this live a coverage of the 2016 Constitution debate will end, uh, but it will be part of the podcast later. So call us at 347-945-7428 in the next 40 seconds. Thank you. I'm the president to handle an administration from that point forward to so-called handle the negotiations for free trade agreements. And it's Rip Congress of any renegotiation of those, and that what it put them to be was just a yes or a no vote for those free trade agreements. That law is unconstitutional. It needs to be challenged by the Supreme Court and before the Supreme Court. So that's another step. Once that dissolving occurs and the opinion comes down, then we need to restart our manufacturing positions here at home. Uh, we were talking about uh, Pittsburgh last night, weren't we, uh, where the, mid, uh, the iron work used to always be done and in, Indiana, in Indiana as well. Those have all been gone. Why? Because our federal government also uses the EPA. The USDA, the FDA, the CDC, and the whole host of other federal agencies to monitor and strip down American businesses in lieu of profits for overseas. Very quickly, Mississippi used to have 96% of the total catfish sales in the world. After 9 11, President Bush made an agreement to begin the dismantling of that in favor of Chinese fish markets. Do you want to eat fish that has been giving food to eat? Mr. President. Thank you. All right, this is the last question on our international set, and the question will go to candidate Myers on seven. This will be a little complicated here. Then after that, it'll get easier. The Constitution. Article 2, Section 2 reads The President shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur. Article 1, Section 10, which pertains to Congress, makes some distinctions between treaties and agreements or compacts. 
Until now, no president has ever made a long-term arms control treaty on his own authority. If presidents can make major long-term treaties on their own simply by calling them agreements instead of treaties, that undermines the process of congressional advice and consent. This question comes from Robert Jenner Bard's Logic in Cincinnati. Candidate Myers, how would you handle the Iran deal? Would you scrap the whole thing, start over, only change certain aspects of it? What? Yes, um, I'm opposed to the Iran deal on agreement or whatever you want to call it. I think um, Iran, Persia is, is an enemy. Um, they have vowed to destroy us. Uh, we should not be involved again in uh, these international adventures. Um, the Russians have vowed that, that Iran is their ally, and so anything we try to do, well, first of all, we're not going to enforce anything anyway. It's all empty rhetoric, it's all lies, it's all smoke and mirrors. So, what they've done is set us up for a conflagration that's being played out in Syria now. And, um, Unfortunately, I think things are going to get very ugly very quickly. Um, no, the president is far beyond his jurisdictional authority in this, in this area. And Congress, again, has um, abdicated their rules and responsibilities. And so that's why it's so incumbent upon us to remove the incumbents and, and elect people that really understand the Constitution and that will hold the executive branch accountable. The congressional leadership must hold. That's part of the division of our powers. That's what made it so great is that no branch of government is granted all authority. But this president has proven that um, he can do whatever he can get away with. And with the apathy of the people, the um, <laughs> Congress has no incentive to hold his feet to the fire, if you will. And they just go along, go along, get along. You know, sounds good. Iranians say they're going to be nice to us in English to the Western media. So let's do it. That's, you know, this is really, really don't know what they're talking about anyway. But the end will be that Israel will respond and Iran will fall and Russia will be brought into the picture. And it's going to be quite a biblical event and it will prove that God is in control of the world still and in control of the nation. So it doesn't really matter what the illegitimate politicians, I like, I like to call them, do. Um, so God is the one that will make, he decides the destiny of the nations. He decides who rises and who falls. And America is on the precipice about to fall because we are turning away from his wisdom, his knowledge, his word, his promise. So, you know, let's go back to the truth, let's go back to our constitution, let's go back to the rule of law in our dealing with these other nations in the world. We have to deal with them, but we don't have to deal with them in this way. We do not have to abide by lies and illegitimate activities by those who manage to be into power through deception and corruption. Thank you. Goes to candidate Coleman. 
That was set up. Straight question. Copeland. How would you handle the Iran deal? Would you scrap the whole thing, start over, change only some of it? What? Short answer. I'm going to scrap it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then, O'Kander, same question. How would you handle the Iran deal? Would you scrap the whole thing, start over, change only certain aspects? What? Yeah, I, I would scrap it too. That's about it. I would look at other trade deals that we have with our enemies out there too, and I'll scrap those. I would also defund any of this funding that we're giving to our enemies. We gave a billion dollars to Iran like last month and this month. So this, this stuff has to end. And, uh, yeah, I would stop it. Thank you, Kennedy. Okay. Well, audience, our candidates survived the international question set, so give them a round of applause for doing that. We're now going to move to some social questions. Uh, these are usually the questions that most people fight about and pay attention to. Uh, we've heard some very credible answers from you gentlemen on other issues, but we are going to move to some social issues here. Uh, <clears throat> question set up. Research shows promise with marijuana compounds called low toxic therapy to treat leukemia to use just one example. On the other hand, JAMA Psychiatry just published 10 days ago, showing you that the Constitution Party is current in its uh, reading, that associated cannabis with increased substance abuse disorders. It recommended that physicians and policymakers consider this uh, in the current uh, legalization battle. Okay, so we will. Question is from Mr. Tyler Ricks, Meridian, Idaho. Candidate O'Candor, medical marijuana, yes or no, and why? So, okay, medical marijuana, it's, for me, it's a no-brainer, because what you're gonna hear from me now is gonna put this whole thing to rest. Uh, I believe that every person in our country has a right to ingest any substance into their body, and also to uh, decide what goes into their body and what's taken out from it. I think the, the drug war, it's a failure. It's got to end. We as individuals have a right to decide what we do with our bodies. The whole abortion thing should have, like, it said, oh, you have a right to do with your body. Well, that should have said, hey, you know, drugs do. But abortion is another subject. I'm pro-life. Anyway, I'll, I'll go there if you ask me that later. But um, but the, the war on drugs has to end, and this truth includes prescription drugs. Uh, I believe this, in the sovereignty of the individual. I believe that you have the intelligence to decide for yourself. I think doctors can recommend, treat, and, and suggest things for us, but we ultimately have the right to decide what we do with our bodies. Um, if, if you look at the failure of our, our drug policy, it's caused internationally we are killing people. China puts bullets in, in the brains of the people and charges the families. We, we are responsible for that. They used to have people smoking opium all the time. They were doing fine. 
But we are killing people around this country. We're creating drug cartels, right? We've got the DEA, the ATF, all these people, the CIA, are all involved in actually getting drugs in here and profiting off it. It's it got to stop. Our, our individual sovereignty is, is at stake. We have a right, you know, life, um, our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. You know, for some people, even though my, you might say it's misguided, you know, that is their pursuit of happiness. They want to go home and smoke a reefer or whatever they want to do. That's their, that's up to them. I don't care. They want to eat a hot dog. That's up to them. I might not like it. If you break the law when you're using drugs, then you're responsible for that law you broke, not for what you put into your body. Honestly, this has to end. Uh, this is also going to reduce, you know, population in our prisons. It's going to help with gang activity, a reduction of gang activity, and ultimately, you know, we're not going to have cops coming into our houses, searching our cars, patting us down, airport stuff. I mean, it just it goes so deep. This is such a violation of our rights. And, uh, and so I will push for the end of the drug war, and I'll constitutionally prove that you have a right to put into your body what you want. Medical marijuana, the doctor says, hey, that's good for you, and you like that idea, then go for it. It's your choice. Do you want your kids to have immunizations? That's your choice. If you don't, that's your choice. If you look at these arguments that these people are putting out there, it's, it's, it's BS, guys. And, and time for us to unite and support, honestly, support the rights of the drug user. Even though we might not agree with it, that's their right to exist and to do that stuff. And honestly, it'll be safer uh, when it's legal. So that's, that's my position on this stuff. This question goes to candidate Myers. Four Western states now tax and regulate recreational marijuana, so does D.C. 2015, Gallup reported 58% of Americans support legalization. Last week, February 19, Jacksonville Sun-Times in Florida reported marijuana is on the ballot in 20 states this election year. 23 states allow medical marijuana, 11 states do so with various limitations. Candidate Myers, medical marijuana, yes or no? Um, absolutely, yes. And we got medical marijuana in Alaska for many years. There were many proven, empirically um, proven efficacies for medical marijuana and just lists of cannabis, um, including the oils, which um, have been proven to um, ameliorate childhood seizures, uh, unlike any other medications out there right now. So there are definitely benefits to it. Um, as to the overall um, the drug war, I think that's no constitutional war. It's one of the perpetual wars we're being subjected to that's really removing our rights as citizens more than anything. It's a police state, it's a de facto police state, and also it has um, caused a, a rift in race relations among our people because um, minorities are um, more um, aggressively targeted by the law enforcement and stuff like So, you know, <laughs> as a constitutionalist, I believe what the Constitution says, and it says that the federal government has some severely limited rights, or severely limited powers, rather. The other rights go down to the states and beyond that to the people. And if it requires uh, an amendment to prohibit alcohol, then 
why doesn't it require an amendment to the federal constitution to prohibit any other such substance? And I maintain that yes, it does. And so that all drug war activities that the federal government has been engaging in over these many years are illegal usurpations of authority. They're violating the people's rights day and night. They're creating criminals out of otherwise productive citizens and destroying lives, families, communities in the process. Because once a person enters into that process, that system, then there's no escape. They're labeled, they're stuck in the system, they're punished for the rest of their lives. This is wrong. This is against everything America stood for. At one time, hemp was encouraged to be wrong. The Constitution is written on hemp paper, for God's sake. You know, and that's another thing that has to be economy. You want to develop the agricultural economy and all the added products? The only product that I'm aware of that can replace oil is hemp. Hemp can replace oil in the production of plastics. They're making cars out of hemp now. So it's short-sighted to say, you know, to to perpetuate <coughs> this war on drugs, maintain saying that it's it, enhancing our safety and our security and all this, which what in effect is happening is preventing alternative medical treatments from occurring. It's preventing research and development into alternative diet products. It's preventing our agricultural sector from being competitive on a global stage because right next door to Canada, hemp is totally all open and they're making products out of it. So there's nothing good about the war on drugs. I was against legalization of marijuana in Alaska, which just happened because I advocate total decriminalization. So that's my stance. Thank you, Mary. Mr. Coleman gets the change up here on this particular question. Washington State expects taxes for marijuana to exceed an aggregated total of $1 billion by 2019. That's perhaps a rosy estimate. However, Colorado, in the fiscal year ending June 2015, collected $70 million in taxes on marijuana, more tax than gotten on Colorado's alcohol sales. Candidate Copeland, medical marijuana, yes or no, and why? So let's get this straight. We have a war on drugs that's a war on civil rights, okay? What happens when someone's on meth and they run into my child and kill them? Did my child have that right to live? Yes or no? My child had the right. When that person gets stopped on the side of the road and they're acting in whatever capacity they're acting and their vehicle gets searched and they find marijuana in there or other drugs, What about it? Is that not public safety? Or are we just saying we can control it by saying you can only do it in your home? There's a whole host of things that we claim we can only do in our home and should only do in our home. But does that stop right there? The answer is no, it doesn't just stop right there. Communities decide a lot 
of what their laws are going to be. Right now, this is a great example of of an honest argument. I'll take this. I'll take the side of none of medical marijuana, and I'll tell you why. The oil is what's important. If it's a medical use, the oil in it, as Jr. said, is what's important. In it. Not sucking smoke into your lungs. Let me tell you what that's going to have happen. You're going to go down the same road we did with cigarettes. The lawyers are going to make the money. The government's going to make the money. The special interests are going to make the money. That's where it all comes down to. Are we going to politicize drugs? Are we going to just honestly say drugs that are harmful, we need to stay away from? Not just for our own good, but for the protection of others. And that's about as far as I'm going to go with that. This question will go to candidate Myers. Obviously, here in the West, we've had with federal lands recently. We suspect, we suspect that all three of you gentlemen have read the Constitution Party of Idaho's platform statement on what is but is not found in the Constitution regarding unappropriated federal lands. Nothing in this Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice the rights of the United States. This question comes from the Constitution Party, Ada County Chapter. Candidate Myers, what do you say about federal title? Is there a round more inclusive management? What? Well, the Western states is largely understood have been disadvantaged from the beginning because they were not admitted to the Union on the equal footing. And the federal government, in my estimation, and many others, has um, retained the title to those lands improperly, illegally, really. Um, as a price for admission to the union, and that's basically what they did. And so you see a situation where the further west you go, the more <laughs> the divide of the Mississippi is quite stark, but the further west you go, the more federal government ownership and control you see of the land. So when you get to Alaska, it's like 99% of the lands, it's like 1% of the lands are privately held. So I ask, how can you develop an economy when not only, let's say, 1% of your lands are in private hands? All the other lands are controlled by, well, mostly the federal government and the state government, tribal entities, and, and then other government levels. So, um, you know, we need to start by returning those lands. The federal lands must be returned to the state first and let the states decide what they're going to do with them, also to the tribes that they legitimately belong to. So there are treaty obligations that I don't want to neglect to mention that are um, legitimate agreements between our government and these various tribes, and their tribal lands are also being held in trust by the federal government. 
And so this is not a good situation for anyone except the bureaucrats who maintain and increasingly um, enacting rules and regulations which pro prevent the public from accessing these lands. We've seen it with road closures, trail closures, just, you know, forbidden to not enter federal land, you know. And uh, this is not the country I grew up in. It's very strange, you know. I mean, yes, it's been going on for a long time as far as the federal ownership, but they did not assert themselves like they're doing now in preventing the people from access to the so-called public lands. So if the lands are public, and yet the public can't access or utilize the lands, then how and they're being leased out now and sold off to even foreign corporations and governments like for uranium and things like that, then how is it benefiting us? How is it... What is the federal government doing? Why are they doing it? Again, it's a small elite who are benefiting at the expense of the rest of us. The lands do not belong to the federal government. The lands are poorly mismanaged by the federal government. All I have to do is look at the recent river situation in Oregon or wherever, where they unleashed the mining tailings and destroyed that river. And, you know, they did it intentionally. So with that kind of management, you know, it doesn't act as friends for these enemies, and that's what we're looking at with the federal government. So the best itself of the lands go to the states and the tribes and the people. Thank you. Uh, candidate Copeland, clearly the frontier closed a long ago. Candidate Copeland, what did you say about federal title? Uh, is there more ground, more inclusive management? Remember the debacle of the family in Nevada? And they, they wanted to keep their cattle on the federal land, right? <laughs> First argument to get them off was because of the tortoise. Okay, the cattle were grazing upon the land of the tortoise. We needed to protect them. But then what happened? It came out that Harry Reid and his son, in the background, and many in Congress, were actually trying to cut a deal for that very ground so that China could build a plant. Once again, it proves that the federal government is against her own citizens. As far as the Bureau of Land Management goes, I do not like it. I also think that the, uh, the federal lands, up until the, the Western States, as Jennifer said, those territories were given to the states. People were asked to move there. There are some areas, having said that, there are some areas that I believe the federal government needs to keep or the state needs to keep. Some of jelly stuff. Do we want people building a, a home near the, the geyser? No. We want to keep some of that pristine beauty. We need to have some reserves for some of the animals. I mean, we need to be great stewards of what God has given us in this country. If that means the federal government needs to hold on to some lands, yes. If that means the state needs to hold on to some lands, yes. But never at the expense, such as in Oregon, that just happened recently, and the debacle there of people getting shot and killed. Over what? Federal land. 
in land that I guarantee you has been promised in other trade agreements to other businesses. Constitutionally, no, the federal government has no right. They only have rights for ports, a 10-mile square area in Washington, for the buildings of government, and for bases. That's it. That's the Constitution. And so if we go by that, strictly by that, then the Bureau of Land Management must be disbanded, and the lands that are currently federal need to be turned over to the states. Thank you. Congress, exercising its authority under Article 4, declared that no net loss of public lands will be the management policy of these United States. Candidate O'Connor, what do you say about federal land title? Is there a middle ground, more inclusive management? Uh, much of what these guys said told you we could say it even better. Uh, what it comes down to, look at the Constitution, federal government, 10 square miles, Washington, D.C., that's all they get. That's it. So all of this federal land grab has got to be given back to the, to the state. And this sort of policy is, is basically what you can expect from me. We have all these different departments. We're going to cut these departments, and we're going to push the responsibility to the state. The states are sovereign. They're their own little country. That's how they were... That's what they were. They used to be in countries. So these little countries can take care of themselves. And so your land management, federal land, it all goes back to the state. And actually about building homes on, you know, Yellowstone, personally, I don't really have a problem with it so long as people care for that piece of land they live on and uh, they'll turn it into, you know, a, I don't know, a shopping mall or something. But um, I'm, I want to open up our public land, let people get uh, land grants from, from the state and, and have a little cabin way out there. They, that's how they want to live. You know, where's the excitement in this country anymore? Back in, how exciting was that event? We were here a few hundred years ago, and we got to plant our flag somewhere. You know, I want to bring that sort of thing back. And honestly, this bubble, like I mentioned before, is going to pop. People are going to get hurt. Our population is going to reduce. And we're going to want to be living elsewhere. So, you know, this kind of ties into that. A lot of stuff is naturally going to happen. It's kind of unavoidable. So us making rules about, um, I, I'm sorry, the federal government has no right to own anything outside of Washington, D.C. We need to we need to put them back into check and return the power to the state. The state is sovereign uh, and the individual is sovereign, the family is sovereign. We need to respect this and, and get the federal government to start doing what it was meant to do, defend our, our laws defend our Constitution, and defend our country. And other than that, I mean, there's really not much more for them to do. Taxes will be reduced. Taxes will get it back to where it's apportionment, where the federal government taxes the state, and then the states, you know, pay uh, based on the population. And anyway, it all ties in together. And uh, so basically, BLM, we've got to go. Anybody that lost their property, they get it back plus more. This imminent domain thing, that's only got to, that's got to be a state thing where the state does it her own eminent domain. That's their issue. But uh, but if, whether eminent domain is implemented, the people need to get paid for it. I mean, I'm not saying what it's worth, like double or something. They seriously got to be, uh, you know, given given what it's worth plus more. Because it's, oh, and there is another thing. is 
is this eminent domain thing is being applied to where somebody's property is worth a lot of money, and then they say, oh, there's some endangered bug on it, so you can't do anything to it. Well, you need to pay that person for the reduction of the value in their property since you're going to do this to them from out of that. This will be our last question on our social uh, question set, and actually the last question, this particular response will be the last uh, last question that we're going to ask. We may do a drill on yes/no questions. Um, <clears throat> this particular question will go to candidate Colton. The setup, Roe v. Wade. Subject of abortion is expected in Constitution Party discussions. A question from Doug Patterson in Mantachi, Mississippi asks, what is your plan to overturn Roe v. Wade? We want to ask that question differently. We're using some material uh, supplied by Robert Jenner, host of Bard's Logic. The United States is in a population decline. Its fertility rate is not sustaining the population. Candidate Copeland, what would you do to encourage Americans to have children again instead of relying on people from outside nations to sustain our population? Boy, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Especially since I'm looking forward to that because you're right. <laughs> That's one way to get sure we have plenty of jobs for people. Uh, not just the deportation, but it's going to obviously open up with fewer children going on. First of all, the federal government has absolutely no responsibility in the life of the individual. And what I mean by that is women as young as 13 are being put on birth control. By the time they are 23, their wounds are defertilized. It helps to enhance their not only their defertilization, but it also brings about breast cancer issues. I personally believe that you beautiful women sitting here today are a lot stronger than the Republicans and the Democrats or the Supreme Court justices say you are. Regardless, this is my position. I believe in the sanctity of life for the personhood. From the point of protection, the very soul is sparked, and the child begins to be forming to the moment of natural death. I believe in the personhood. So, what would I do? I will step up the pace. There are two bills right now in the Congress, one in the Senate, one in the uh, House. Neither one's being pushed. I was being interviewed by Georgia Right to Life, and, and my question to them was, is why isn't it being pushed? What's the problem? Is it Obama or somebody else? They said, no, it's just lip service. It's lip service. They have no intentions of taking up this fight. Well, as the next president, I will not only take up the fight, I will push for that constitutional amendment for parent, for 
CW becomes a part of our Constitution. The sanctity of life should be supported, not a sanctity of a death. Not just the death of the child, but the death of women in general <coughs> and the death of children that they'll never be able to have. Something else I shared with them. They go through this stage. Women are sitting there. They can't have babies anymore. And so what do they do? They go to the doctor, and what do they ask them for? Fertilization pills. So we swing the poor woman to the complete other side. We ramp up her body in a completely different way. We just need to be a God-blessed nation. Thank you, Mr. Cobble. This question goes to candidate O'Kander. Set up. In Pat Buchanan's work, Death of the West, he states the fertility replacement rate at which women give birth to enough babies to sustain the population is 2.1. America is at 1.87. In replacing its population, the United States now ranks 142 out of 224. Basically the bottom third. Candidate O'Kan, what would you do to encourage Americans to have children again instead of relying on people from outside nations to sustain our population? Well, my position uh, is to equate abortion with adoption uh, to get the Constitution amended to where uh, life is protected from the, the point of uh, from conception on, except in instances of rape, I believe, and rape, a woman has a choice to decide if she wants to carry that life or not. And this is particularly important uh, with jihadism on the rise, and, and their, their thought process is raise women, we can do this, and then we'll create more of ourselves. And so the women may want to keep that baby carry the term, I believe it's, your, it's a woman's right to choose uh, if she's going to carry uh, a that, that child to uh, the full term. Um, as far as uh, encouraging Americans to increase our birth rate, you know, one of the things we can do is reduce the illegal immigrants here, and that will probably you know, change our statistics a little bit. Um, I think uh, basically, you know, if we make it possible for people to have families uh, affordably, we take away the fines and the fees, the, the, the duplicate taxations, um, the uh, the, the bureaucracy of our government and we make it possible for people to actually live on a, on a single wage income, people will be more inclined to have families and to, uh, and to reproduce. Um, basically, I mean, the, the, the big thing with me is uh, I believe that, that, the, that, the, that the fetus has a right to life. I believe it's guaranteed in the Constitution. And so we need to, that is a place where our government can step up and say, hey, we will, we will make it possible for you to have this, this birth completely safely. We will provide for that's a, a provision I think the government can provide for the financial. If you don't have the finances to have that baby, we will make sure that you that you are cared for throughout the process as the fetus gets the best, uh, uh, the growing baby gets the best uh, best care possible. And, and then it's affordable. Um, 
know, this thing about uh, the birth control and whatnot, that, again, that comes to a, a, a personal choice. But as far as substances that actually I would want to outlaw would be the, the morning after pill. I don't think it has a, has a place in society except for in instances of rape. And, and in addition to the rape situation, uh, I would say two weeks. You have two weeks of counseling and uh, and uh, uh, opportunities to think it over if you want to like, carry that to term or not. But probably most people, when they get raped, they're, they're going to go to the doctor, they're going to have the rape kit performed, and they're going to have their uterus evacuated at that time. It's not really an abortion. There's no confirmation of you know, conception going on. But you know, I'm for, I'm for doing it as quick as possible within a two-week window. And, uh, and I think basically we, we fix our economy and we make it possible for people to afford to have families. We're naturally going to want to have them, and it's going to occur. Uh, that's pretty much where I'm at on that. And the last question goes to Kevin. So, America's population replacement is falling behind, believe it or not, it's falling behind North Korea, where they have famine taking place. It's falling behind Libya, it's falling behind Syria, it's falling behind Mexico. Two generations into the future, that does not bode well for the survival of Western society. Candidate liars, what would you do to encourage Americans to have children again instead of relying on people from outside the country? Well, it goes back to our um, identity crisis. People are now taught to believe that they're animals that just evolve randomly from you know, chemicals, so then what point is there, what does it matter if there's a fetus in the womb or out of the womb in a machine or, you know, now they're doing uterus transplants and it will soon be possible to transplant a uterus, a fetus from one uterus to another. So maybe the abortion is going to be a transplant, but, you know, soon this is happening. So the issue is going to become more and more complicated. What about transgen, you know, transhuman, transgenetics, where there are more than two parents for a fetus? or other species DNA being incorporated in very percentages into the, the, the organism, you know, so we're having these chimeras. And again, it goes back to the word of God. Who are we? You know, who am I that I'm so fearfully and wonderfully made, David asked the Lord, you know, because we are amazing creations and to reduce us to nothing more than machines or animals is really... Uh, Alive from the pit of hell, and it, we're, we're reaping the um, consequences of that lie. And so, at present, I know the truth. I moved off government funding within my purview of authority from um, facilitating any abortion whatsoever. And, you know, just tell people that they are worthy beings. You know, that I believe each person has a purpose, and each person that's aborted, their purpose will never be known. We probably killed many great innovators, scientists, doctors, whoever. We will never know because there have been so many. And just callously accepted, really, we're following the footsteps of Israel. You know, they called it Moloch. You sacrificed their missions to Moloch. And it was the same reason. It was for convenience. It was for economic security. You know, coming up to you know, support a larger family. And so we have lost our identity, 
We have replaced our divine imperative with personal ambition, and um, we have sacrificed our children on the altar of convenience, and that's about where we're at. So, yeah, the president needs to speak the truth. I don't know what more the president can do other than appointing judges that also support life. And again, it's not just the abortion issue. It is a spectrum of life issue. I um, last year had to speak out in Alaska against this assisted suicide bill. It's now back in the legislature as we speak. And there's that, and then there's the illegal drone strikes where our president's killing American citizens without due process of law. So the right to life means, means many things, a wide spectrum. And so I would defend the right to life on all fronts. Thank you. 
conservative right constitutionalist, and, and that was how one of the ways I saw that it could be accomplished. Um, unfortunately, well, I won't get into that, but there will be some other developments coming out of California that will be of uh, interest to some of the people here. <laughs> so, you know, without ballot access, without good candidates, um, we're not going to change anything. Without speaking up, without educating ourselves, without putting our money where our mouths are, you know, the founding fathers and mothers, you know, they sacrificed everything to give us what we had. And it's pathetic if we can't even turn on the TV and be involved in a couple of meetings and we can step out. So, thank you. I want to thank JR for sharing the mic with me. <laughs> I want to wrap up with just a simple question to you in the audience. How many of you live here in Idaho? Raise your hand. Come on. You live here in Idaho. I'm here today. I'm not seeking the party nomination today. I'm seeking your vote today. We have a primary coming up. I came out here last May. I started in, in Coeur d'Alene, and I came all the way down through to Boise and across the Falls. I've been down into Salt Lake City in Utah campaigning. I want your vote. That's why I'm here. I'm also here to help educate about the party. We desperately need people like you. We need you in our party because you are concerned citizens who are activists. And yes, we have to be called activists in our party. But let me throw this one little note to you. Did you know that the War Powers Act made you and me enemies of our government? Who pushed that? Republicans and who? Democrats, we must abandon those two parties. We need to encourage our family, our neighborhoods to abandon those parties. We need young people like our good friend here to be a part of this party, to be a part of the real future of hope. That's why I'm here. I want his votes, and I want him if he's of a Democrat or Republican, to switch that affiliation, don't you? I do. I want them to have a future built on God-given liberty freedom that is sanctified in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and the Bill of Rights. I want them for generations to come to experience what I did growing up. And so having said that, I need your vote. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Mayor you have the last word, sir. Right. Uh, I wrote a book, and I'm not here looking for money. I price this thing at $10. I'm giving the electronic version away for free on my website. 
there's no way that, that this debate can, can really put out everything out there that I stand for. I'm not a politician, I'm a patriot. And what I did is I wrote things and I used bullets. Right? I'm pro-Second Amendment. I used bullets and I laid it out. I laid the problem and I laid the solution of what I would propose. I believe that first, like we learned from the Bible, first comes the word, right? You, you imagine it, then comes the word, and then we get behind it and we make it. So every candidate out there right now, I don't think anybody in any of the parties has done what I've done and put a clear roadmap to uh, a vision for America. I believe in order for us to change the system, we got to get behind a vision that we can support and then run with it. Uh, 90 planks in my platform, plus in back there in the narrative, there's probably another 30 more planks in there. I lay it out clearly, guys, and I went to God with it. I fasted. I prayed. I, I went up on top of a mountain. I did everything I could to get close to God when I wrote this book, and I tried to do it within the, the limitations, the boundaries of the Constitution. Now, I understand I am not a constitutional scholar like Obama, right? but I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I live by the spirit of the Constitution, and most of this in here is constitutional. However, if there's something in there that's unconstitutional, I'm going to have people surrounding me that are going to hold my feet to the fire. I do not want to over, overstep the limits of the Constitution. Um, and some of this stuff will turn into be like, you know, recommendations for states, you know, some of this automotive stuff and whatever. But uh, I want you to know that, that I'm doing this uh, for us. I believe that it's going to take uh, people like us standing together, working our circles of influence, and, uh, and, and carrying the torch. Otherwise, this, this whole experiment is going to fail. And, uh, and so I urge you guys to, uh, to get the electronic copy of this book. You don't have to give me any money. And I want you to know that after this campaign's over, if this book still sells or something like that, after I'm elected, that money's going to the Mercury One Foundation. So I'm not trying to get rich. I'm not seeking fame. People have to get to know me in order for me to get elected. But, uh, you know, so that's where it's at. People have to get to know me. I can't get elected. Uh, I would prefer, honestly, to, to go retire in some cabin somewhere. That would be great. But under the circumstances of, and the conditions of this world, we can't. We can't go hide in the shell and, and go and go ride this out in our bunkers. We need to stand up. We need to work together. We need to prepare for, for darker times in order to make it through to the to the brighter days. And, uh, and so with that, I say, um, you know, God bless you guys for coming here and uh, for listening. And, uh, and uh, spread the message, all right? Uh, we are the Constitution Party. That gives us an advantage. People, the Constitution resonates in people's hearts. So let's get that message out there. And uh, I need you to vote, too. Thank you.
Idaho Pizza Company at 405 East Fairview in Meridian. Our three distinguished candidates will be there. They're invited to come over and have dinner with them and meet with them directly. Uh, I encourage you to come, bring your friends and family and so forth. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for turning up. Godspeed. Okay, it's over. Thank you very much, Susan, for uh, taking us there so that we can listen to the show, uh, the show so we can listen to the debate live uh, there from Idaho. And I appreciate it. And uh, of course, all those folks that listen now, appreciate you coming to the show and also sharing this out so uh, people can hear the debate uh, on the podcast as well. And I see we only have about five minutes left. And at this point, uh, I muted the mic from over there at the debate in Idaho. And so, of course, we will be back on Wednesday, Eastern Time at 10 p.m. So join us and be a part of our roundtable discussion where we will uh, perhaps hear some interviews that uh, Susan, our panelists, will be doing there at the debates. Afterwards, uh, she'll be interviewing perhaps some candidates as well as uh, people who are there at the uh, debate to get their reaction and so i'll be calling her shortly after the show uh, so i appreciate uh you guys coming and checking that out as well so i only have a few minutes so i just want to say go ahead and check out the patriot journalist network at www.patriotjournalist.com as well as the website at www.bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com Check out all the different pages. We also have some wonderful organizations and charities you can uh, donate to if uh, you like to do something of that nature. Uh, we also have the Newsmax, uh, the TV there on the page, as well as our articles. Uh, you can subscribe to that. And also, uh, you can uh, share the links by either doing it through email, which I provided on the contact page uh, that you could just copy and paste and put it in the body portion of your email before sending it out to your email group. Or you can go and tweet out uh, the link as well. And you can also follow me on Twitter uh, there too. And so I will end this episode as I do every episode. And that is by the song from Aubrey Ashburn. And as I said earlier, you can hear more of her music by going to www.aubreyashburn.com. So have a great night, folks. Looking forward to seeing you again. Take care. And uh, good night.